Welcome, you're listening to On Human Rights. We are broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute in Lund, Sweden. My name is Christina Jäger. Today we are speaking to Morten Kjaro and Michael McEachran on racism. Dear listeners, welcome to today's podcast on racism. My name is Christina Jäger and I'm the Head of Communications here at the Raoul Wallenberg Institute. I have two guests with me in the studio today. Michael McEachran, visiting researcher at the RWI. You hold a PhD in philosophy and your current research focus is on post-colonial, decolonial perspectives of human rights and racial discrimination. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. And I have Morten Kjerum, director of the RWI, who for, wrote your first newspaper article on racism in 1981. And since then, the issue has stayed with you. And you also used to be a member of the CERD, United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, and director of the EU Fundamental Rights Agency, where you made a lot of surveys on racial discrimination. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. So today we will touch upon Europe and racism what racism is and how we as individuals and societies can and should address structural racism. The past few weeks we've seen a movement rise with mass protests kick-starting in the United States after the killing of George Floyd. And in the wake of his death uh, there have been ripple effects across the world. Now, if we talk about Europe, so what is the status of the issues of racism and discrimination in Europe, would you say? Starting with you, Michael. Europe today has a problem with uh, with racism, and uh, if you uh, speak of uh, uh, equal rights, access to uh, rights, and uh, issues of discrimination, um, there's uh, obviously a problem with uh, uh, what one can describe as racial discrimination in Europe. There are problems with racial and ethnic discrimination, but if you look at the patterns of discrimination across Europe, it's, uh, and there have been, uh, for instance, uh, uh, the Fundamental Rights Agency have uh, done surveys uh, that uh, point to that uh, the most discriminated against racial or ethnic groups in Europe tend to be of non-European uh, descent or have a non-European background, what uh, one would call people of color or non-white people or people of non-European descent, however one wants to uh, uh, phrase it. So this is the general pattern across Europe in any society that uh, the most discriminated against groups tend to be um, people of color, including Roma. So if you look in at uh, surveys across uh, uh, Europe and also academic studies, you will find that these, uh, the two most discriminated against groups tend to be um, Roma and people of African descent. Uh, also in some countries, uh, North Africans, such as in France, uh, tend to be uh, the most discriminated against groups. And then other uh, people of non-European uh, descent also tend to stand out as especially discriminated against and across areas of society too. So, uh, you know, in in, uh, employment, on the housing market, in education and so forth. So this points to this uh, issue as being what one would describe as a structural problem. So what is your take, Morten? Racism uh, is is deeply rooted uh, in uh, Europe. And uh, I'm very pleased with what we are seeing now, that what happens uh, in the U.S. with the Black Lives Matters movement uh, in the, which have really mobilized in uh, the, after the George Floyd 
uh, killing. Uh, that that is also resonance. Uh, there's a resonance in Europe and and sort of mobilizing uh, discourse on uh, on racism. We should not forget that it is only in sort of maybe the past 10, 20 years that we seriously are starting accepting that racism is a phenomenon. There have been a very high level and still is in many places high level of denial uh, of uh, of racism that is actually is a phenomenon uh, in Europe. And when I talk about Europe here, I talk sort of say the EU, Europe, except from the UK. I think UK has always for, for many, many years stood out as a, a unique society where actually there have been a recognition and a lot of initiatives have been taken to address uh, racism. Not all successful, but definitely there have been an alertness. Whereas continental Europe, including in Sweden, the Nordic countries, very little has uh, been on. One issue, just to highlight one aspect of this, is the phenomenon of, of hate crime. Hate crime, which is crime directed against a person because of who she or he is. It can be the color of the skin, it can be the gender, it can be a sexual orientation. But it's not because you're, you're, the crime is not, or the aggression is not directed towards you because of things you have done, but towards you because who you are. That's of course an enormous scaring phenomenon because how can I protect myself against this? You can't because you have the skin color, you have the, the gender that you carry around and uh, when, it will, when will it be me? And when we look at the level of hate crime against uh, Afro-Europeans it's something like uh, every third Afro-European that have been confronted with hate crime within the past few years. So it's a very, very, we're talking about very high numbers and it has been a total non-issue in most of the continental European uh, countries and it's a phenomenon that has a very deep impact on the societies because if you cannot address, uh, feel safe in your society, if you feel you cannot address the police, that they will not take take you serious if you have been, let's say, beaten up because of who, who you are. I mean, who do you then trust. So, and when we asked, when we did the big surveys in the Fundamental Rights Agency, and we asked people who had been confronted with hate crime, said, what did you do? The answer was normally nothing. And then we asked them, why didn't you do anything? And they said, first of all, we didn't believe anything would come out of it. And secondly, we didn't trust the police. And it may actually accelerate the hate. So basically what some of them told us, that we will then be beaten by the police uh, if they turn to the police. So there is a big uh, dimension here. And it's only with the big surveys that came out of the Fundamental Rights Agency at the European level that actually that whole issue started to come up on the agenda that ministers of justice started addressing it. We are back in 2012, uh, (coughs) 13, around there. And that police started equipping themselves or capacity built themselves in addressing these issues. So in short, what what we have here is that we have a a continent which had been somewhat in denial and are now taking it more serious, is addressing it and hopefully will benefit from the discussions that we now see and to take it further to because there is a challenge. All right, so let's talk about what racism is. Uh, Morten, how do you define racism for we? Racism is basically uh, discrimination based on uh, skin color, ethnicity, nationality, 
uh, elements that uh, you cannot just change. And you are discriminated in uh, numerous areas in, in your, that are key to your, your life. It can be housing, education, health, that you're not treated on an equal footing with people of another skin color, of another ethnicity. That is sort of the essence of discrimination and, uh, and racism today. That's how you understand it. And up through history, there have been very many different definitions, but that's sort of in the UN and in the human rights bodies, what you, uh, how you address it. And, uh, and another feature in this that I think is, is, is important to understand. I mean, I've worked with this for, for many years, and the more I've worked with discrimination, the more difficult it gets. Uh, it's extremely complicated. But just one complication here is that uh, you, of course, have the upfront discrimination. A, a person with a, a black uh, skin color wanting to rent an apartment, and he's told, sorry, we do not rent to blacks. I mean, that's sort of upfront. That's what where everybody or most people would recognize that this is discrimination. But then there's also what we call indirect discrimination, and that's where it gets much more subtle. That's, for example, when you perform an, a cleaning job, ask for a, a high-command in the local language, be it Swedish, be it uh, German or whatever, in, in uh, oral and writing. And then, uh, and that has been very often used as a sorting mechanism mm. if you do not want uh, ethnic minorities to apply for a particular job, is that you put in criteria. And of course it can be relevant to have criteria of good command of a particular language in orally and writing, but is it in that particular job Legitimate. So there is this this legitimate uh, test you you then have to uh, apply to the specific uh, case. So the indirect discrimination, where on the surface uh, it looks okay, it's fine, but when you then dig in and apply it to particular groups, then suddenly you see, hmm, no, here in this case, these persons will be excluded from applying for this job or getting into that part of the uh, housing market. Uh, whatever it, it may be. And then, of course, the <coughs> next level of, of complexity is is then the unconscious, where it's actually, we don't want to discriminate, but we actually do discriminate because we carry with us a lot of what we have injected with throughout, uh, which actually, again, leads to discriminatory uh, practices. Say, for example, in the health sector, in some of the surveys that we did at the Fundamental Rights Agency, we saw that a lot of ethnic minorities actually found that they were discriminated against in the uh, health sector. And I'm sure if you ask the nurses and the doctors, did you want to discriminate? Was that actually on purpose? Of course it was not. And, and they would even say that it's not even indirectly. But still, that w was what came uh, out of it and the perception from, uh, say, the users of the health services. So how do we actually then, <coughs> how do we trigger, how do we deal with our subconscious uh, in this? So there are a lot of layers in discrimination, and I have to say, we have to address them all if we want to really get to the root uh, of racial discrimination in our society. Mm. Yes, yes, and um, I agree with uh, that. I would say that from a universal human rights perspective, there are even there's even an additional layer, and universal human rights law is, I think, without a doubt, the most comprehensive anti-discrimination law when it comes to issues of racial discrimination. So, in in European law, EU law, 
And in Swedish law, you have, yes, direct discrimination. Someone is uh, directly discriminated in any sort of interpersonal uh, situation. And then you've got indirect uh, discrimination, which can be then uh, institutional forms of discrimination, as Morten mentioned. Then from the perspective of the uh, International Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, takes it even to another level, and that is the societal, social level, where discrimination is also about, broadly speaking, how society may be organized in such a way that some groups in society, racial groups, do not have the same access or equal enjoyment of rights. And so then that is also described as a form of discrimination and something that has to be addressed. So for an example of this, which is explicitly mentioned in the ISOD, is uh, segregation, various forms of segregation, including housing segregation. And then it is not so that it is an organization that is responsible or individuals that are responsible for these forms of discrimination, but it is the state. So that is an additional level uh, of, of discrimination and an additional layer, if you will, uh, which uh, makes, uh, again, universal human rights, I think, law uh, against racial discrimination, the most comprehensive and maybe the, also the most progressive form of anti-discrimination legislation against racism. And also it sets it apart from, from EU law and, and national anti-discrimination laws across uh, Europe, including here in Sweden. Thank you. So before we talk about how we can fight racism as a society and individuals, I heard Ibrahim Kendi, who is an historian and uh, author at the American University. He makes this distinction between a non-racist and an anti-racist. Do we also make this distinction and what are they, the non-racist and the anti-racist? Would you say, Michael? From what I've gathered, he uh, seems to uh, have make a distinction between anti being an anti-racist and being a non-racist. Where being an anti-racist, in order to be an anti-racist, then you actually have to actively and proactively be against racism and wanting to take steps and want being pro policy making and so forth policies that would address address issues of racism and that being and quote-unquote non-racist, which I think is maybe the typical stance, say, in a country like Sweden, mm -hmm. you know, uh, would pride with Sweden, Swedish society, uh, even at the state level, if you look at the uh, state reports to, uh, to, the, to third, uh, you know, would pride itself of being a country of non-racists. And, and from his perspective, that seems to be also oftentimes a covert form of, of, of racism, where there's racism is not being recognized, properly recognized in society and also in oneself, where one categorically wants to set oneself aside as being categorically without prejudices. And, and I don't think he seems to think that that is not a realistic self-perception and self-understanding and that this sort of stance actually reproduces uh, racism and does nothing to recognize it and address it. Yes, as far as I can understand, he, he means that the, the very heartbeat of racism is denial. Do you think that the, do you believe that's true, Morton? Do you agree to what he says that being non-racist is, uh, is often denying that you might have a prejudice or a bias yourself? Absolutely. I think if we again look at the uh, at Sweden, uh, the Swedish labor market uh, may actually in a way prove it because I think most Swedes uh, 
as well as other uh, many other Europeans would perceive themselves as as non-racist uh, and say no, I mean no way, I have no problem with person with uh, persons with a different skin color. And then yet again we see that, uh, for example, the Swedish labor market, that uh, the darker you are, the darker your skin complexion is, the more difficult it is to enter the labor market. And and why is that? Is that because they are poor educated? Is it because they don't speak Swedish? Is it because etc. etc. And and I think to a lot of that we can say no. We know by fact and from very many studies that people with a, a different skin color and ethnicity have to apply something like twice as many times as uh, ethnic Swede uh, to uh, be called for an interview. And so it's only by then looking at your institution and ask, ask yourself How are we doing? I did that once when I was a director of the EU Fundamental Rights Agency. I said, each of my decisions are, of course, totally unbiased. They are, I'm sort of saying, not discriminating, neither on gender or ethnicity. But what about my subconscious? Is How does that work? I mean, when I add all my decisions up and say, what does it look? So I made a big study of my own institution to say, to look at, What does it look from a gender perspective and from a, a racial perspective? And it didn't look good. There were a number of issues where you could say, when I added all my decisions up, then there was a bias. That, of course, I would always deny if you asked me, but it was only by looking into it more systemically and, and uh, studying it, I could actually see it. So we all carrying the biases. We all need to address these biases and, and see how we can perform and then do better than we are doing currently. So, no, I don't think people are, uh, are racist, uh, and it's because of upfront racism that the situation for Afro-Swedes at the labor market is as difficult as it is, but there are other elements and subconscious elements that leads to racist outcomes. Result. And that is also what Candy says, that the first step is to recognize that there are bias and prejudice and to accept that that in itself is not dangerous, but it's only then that we can come to terms with racism and yeah. move ahead. There's a beautiful little book uh, called, called Between Me and the World. What is between me and the world? My skin color. And how do I act in order to be able to react and, and be accepted in this world? Because me, that's what's inside me. That's all what I've been brought up with, all my ideas, my values, my education, my gender. I mean, we are all so complex. And then there's the world out there with equal complexity and possibilities, etc. But between that, between that me and that world, there is something else, my skin color. How do I, how do I act there? Beautiful little book. It's a father writing to his son, giving him some good advice mm -hmm. on on what is it that you can mm -hmm. can do. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that tip. We'll definitely read it. So, what about societies? What can we do to come to terms with racism? Institutions, governments. Yes, I think maybe uh, from a human rights perspective, of course, uh, following the uh, the ISOD, uh, it's uh, important. I think critical to recognize that there's structural racism. That is. To To say that racial discrimination is a problem across areas of society and it has to do with how society actually is organized socially institutionally and so forth so this is that recognition I think is critical then of course there needs to be uh, this needs to be addressed and so there needs to be uh, 
policies put in place, uh, there needs to be uh, processes of uh, institutional reform and, and transformation and so forth. And then, you know, at a social, social level, it also boils down to how we perceive societies as political communities, as national communities. And the narratives that has been, have been cultivated, uh, nationalistic narratives over centuries, which has based the political community on uh, national communities on race and ethnicity, you know, ethnic Swede, but also being a European and a white European and that sort of identification, national identification, it has to go. And uh, there has to be transformation too in uh, that. And uh, there has to be a sense of uh, national and political community that is perhaps more rights-based that uh, rather than saying we are a society that is based on uh, an ethnic belonging and commonality or racial belonging and commonality. We are a society that is based on a respect for equal rights, human dignity, equal human dignity and rights, something like, like this. But then also, I think, and this is something that uh, this, uh, this new European Parliament resolution from Friday actually also points to and which the European, there was a Euro, another European Parliament resolution that was, I would say, as surprisingly progressive and that was a European Parliament resolution on the fundamental rights of people of African descent that was adopted by the Parliament, European Parliament on the 26th of March uh, last year. And both of these resolutions, one of the things that this, uh, really make them stand out is that they also, not only do they recognize structural racial discrimination and they use that terminology, but they also point to historical, the historical roots, if you will, of structural racial discrimination mm -hmm. being connected to also centuries of European colonialism and imperialism that has not only established structural forms of racial discrimination in Europe, but also internationally in other countries, in the US, for instance, or in Australia and, and so forth. And also that, you know, and that is also something that has to be recognized, maybe also uh, something that has to be, or not maybe, I think something that also should be addressed and that also even, and this is coming now to even sustainable development, I think is also a sustainable development issue where the relationships between states and inequities between states and between the developed states, which the developed states is basically the European Union states and former European so-called settler colonial states like Australia, New Zealand and the US and Canada, that the relationship between the developed states and the developing, so-called developing these the inequities, lack of democracy at the UN and so forth, where, for instance, just to take one example of many, there was this resolution that was adopted by the Human Rights Council last week also, uh, in also in response to these massive protests and so forth. And the African group at the UN had called for an urgent debate in the Human Rights Council and had then put forth a first draft for a resolution to be adopted by the Human Rights Council where they had called for an independent commission of inquiry into police brutality and, and structural racism in the US, systemic racism as they called it. And this resolution, because of di diplomatic pressure from um, 
you know, uh, unnamed uh, states, but uh, because of diplomatic pressure, it was not only was this commission of inquiry deleted from the resolution, but the U.S. was not even mentioned in the resolution by name. So, you know, how how democratic is, is that? You know, I mean, you can accuse uh, various um, states for being democratically corrupt and so forth. But the U.N. also has uh, a democratic, democratic deficit. And these sorts of issues also has to be addressed. And I think they also hark back to... Uh, you know the establishment of racism over centuries and relation unequal relationships of power and so forth so i think that has also to be addressed and that is also a sustainable development issue i would even say i think i think one one of the challenges uh, that we have seen in europe for the past 30 40 years with the increased arrival of immigrants port of uh, migrant workers uh, to uh, to europe is that we have seen a blurring of, let's say, the classical uh, class divisions in society and the alliances. So you could say what what has happened in Europe is that we have sort of got an ethnified working class, if you go back to that sort of language uh, in Europe. And uh, with all the issues involved, uh, when you have the more marginalized group, the more disempowered groups in society where you then have crime, you have, uh, I mean, a number of issues which follows disempowered groups. And now this group, where previously it was Europeans making up that group, today it's Europeans with an ethnic minority background. And suddenly with that shift that you sort of got ethnified the most disempowered, socially disempowered groups, we also saw less and less political support. Mm. When you could say in the good mm. old days, you would have traditional left-wing, even mm. the Social Democratic Party, always sort of at least trying to explain when if things happened in the group of disempowered, to speak their case <coughs> politically, in the media, etc. Now we see that less and less. There's less and less support for those groups. It, although, I mean, the phenomena are more or less the same. And I would even say that the disempowered or the working class group that we have today are much more peaceful, much less criminal, uh, not a, a criminal, a criminal things than the working class, how they conducted themselves when it was ethnic Europeans, ethnic Swedes, Danes, or whatever, where you had a mm. much higher mm. crime rate than you have today, where mm. we, I mean, have an extremely low, historically low crime rate mm. uh, in our societies. Mm. But yet again, then mm. politicians, mm. Uh, time and again, mm. illustrate how the our prisons are disproportionately filled mm-hmm. with persons with ethnic minority background. So we sort of get that image of them being very, very criminal. And of course, it's not wrong that there is a dispro- disproportionately high percentage of persons with an ethnic minority background in, in our prisons. But if you make a social analysis of it, then certainly the picture change completely. So there's an enormous discourse here that has gone astray and that we need to catch up on and where politicians in particular, the media, needs to be extremely alert to mm-hmm. how do they actually communicate mm-hmm. some of these phenomena around uh, the, uh, es- the migrant uh, workers, the ethnic minorities in our community. So we don't jump to the, to the easy conclusions and thereby 
fuel discrimination and racism mm -hmm. in our society. And again, coming back to what we have discussed previously uh, here, is that the, that consciousness mm -hmm. about that racism is part of our society, is the starting point. And then from there, mm -hmm. we need then to penetrate mm -hmm. all the different discourses and say, is this really true mm -hmm. that they are uh, more violent or, or whatever the uh, issue may be? And also looking at the historical context. Uh. Um, would tend to be. But then... To follow up on, on that, I think one of, one of the... My slight fears with the uh, current uh, uh, Black Lives Matters uh, uh, discussion, uh, which I <laughs> fully support, of course, but, but what I fear a little bit is that the uh, discourse on inequality, be very conscious mm -hmm. about the... know from Denmark, my own country... to integrate. I think in many ways the integration, uh, of course not everything has worked, or is it the other part? Mm -hmm. So I would just say that uh, the very good track. Thank you so much Michael and Morten for participating and thank you for listening. Pleasure. Thank you. That was Martin Karam and Michael McEachran on racism. This has been On Human Rights. For more information and the latest updates on Ralph Wallenberg Institute's work, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you for listening.